This is R.J. Rushdoony, Easy Chair Number 54, September 29, 1983. Today our Easy Chair is going to be a bit different. Uh, with me here are Otto Scott and John Saunders Quaid, and the three of us are going to discuss the Constitution of the United States. Our feeling is that there is a lot of... Uh, erroneous thinking on the subject, that many well-meaning Christians and conservatives are going astray because they are emphasizing a return to the Constitution when, as a matter of fact, uh, such a thing is virtually impossible given the climate of opinion in the country today. The Constitution is a product of centuries of thinking in Christendom. It is far from perfect, but it represents a tremendous achievement in the history of the world. On the other hand, what the Constitution posited as a background, even a liberal commentator, Corwin, called attention to. It was the higher law of God. And when men abandon that higher law, the Constitution is meaningless. It becomes a document which can mean whatever the courts choose to make it mean. And that's exactly what has happened. To give you an illustration from California. California has a Supreme Court that reflects the thinking of Jerry Brown. As a result, Proposition 13, the tax limitation law, is now being interpreted out of existence. The people voted in an amendment which was a victim's a bill of rights in criminal cases. That has been thrown out. The people called for a reapportionment when the state legislature twice went against the will of the people to ram through something that would give the Democratic Party an overwhelming advantage. When an initiative measure overthrew that, the courts threw out the initiative. When a bill was introduced by Sebastiani or uh, another initiative, again, that was thrown out. I could go on at some length to call attention to the fact that the California Supreme Court, like the U.S. Supreme Court, has done everything to frustrate the Constitution and the will of the people. So, as long as you have that kind of judicial activism, there's not much that you can say for the safeguard of the Constitution. On top of that, we have another fact. Behind that judicial activism is the attempt of the state to replace God and to impose its fiat will upon society. Well, I've had my little say, and now I'm going to ask John to tell us a little bit about a subject that uh, he bearded a congressman about recently. 
And uh, the congressman just brushed the Constitution aside, saying, well, I'm not a lawyer. In other words, it wasn't relevant and he didn't care. Well, basically, the, the whole question was over Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution, which has to do with uh, what land may the federal government uh, have jurisdiction over. And the Constitution is very specific in terms of fort magazines and other needful buildings, specifically for the purposes of running the government. In other words, for the United States government, the federal power to control vast hundreds of millions of acres uh, in the interests of the people or in the name of the people or to protect for the people or to hold for the people or for the future or for any other reason is totally unjustified. It's a fiasco. Um, and when Congressman Lehman gave, it, gave from the 18th District here, came to town for one of his local town meetings, um, I asked him, the first question I asked him was, Congressman, how much longer is uh, the Congress of the United States going to continue to violate Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution? And the first thing he said was, does that have anything to do with Lebanon? <laughs> that was the very first question he asked me. And I said, no, Congressman, it has to do with the management of the public lands in the United States, the so-called public lands. And he said, well, is there a bill coming up that I have to vote on? <laughs> and I said, no, Congressman, I'm simply asking you a question. How much longer will the Congress of the United States continue to violate Article One, Section 8 of the Constitution in having jurisdiction over public lands when the lands were given to men by God and not by the fiat will of the state? Mm -hmm. And uh, he said, well, you have to understand, Mr. Saunders, or uh, I'm, I'm not a constitutional lawyer, so I don't know about these things. Next question, please. Yes. Well, now, as it turned out, in this community, there is currently going on a major major squabble between developers, between the lumbering people, between uh, the environmental elitists, uh, between uh, the, the whole community. The Boy Scouts are even involved because they wanted a piece of ground, and I won't go into all the details, but essentially I told everyone there at this meeting, and 80% of the questions had to do with this issue, which the congressman said, well, I don't prefer not to meddle in local affairs, and yet every single question was related to that, and he refused to deal with them. And the point is that all of these different groups of people are fighting over a few hundred acres of land when the United States government has almost a million acres of land sitting up there locked up in a forest, you see, which no one can touch. And everyone in this county is at each other's throats over a couple of 300 acres of land when there's a million land sitting up there wide open. And, and the whole problem is created by the federal policy. And, you know, we could go into the fact that, that the environmentalists have used their own special interests to block uh, the development of our nation's resources because right now, uh, for example, we've talked before about the fact that uh, there's enough chromite in California alone to supply all this nation's needs for the next 500 years. It's one of the 37 strategic metals, and without it, you don't make high-quality steel. And yet the eight major areas where chromite is in California were all tied up in wilderness areas, Ten years ago. Now, the congressman comes right back and says, well, but you see, just because they're a wilderness area, that doesn't mean that you can't mine there. No. But the qualifications and regulations on wildernesses are so stringent and so tight that it is virtually impossible to ever set up a mining operation in a wilderness. It, is, it, is, it costs you immense sums of money 
just be, before you ever turn a single spade of dirt on the ground. So the whole problem is, is that the lands have been pulled out from under the people because the Constitution is not being used as an instrument of protection, but as an instrument of oppression. And the federal government can use these public lands for which they pay tax reparations to most states. They can use those federal lands as a club over the heads of state legislatures. And that's just one aspect, though, of the problem that you just mentioned. Well, let me read uh, the concluding paragraph of Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution. It limits uh, the federal lands to the District of Columbia, and uh, such places are as are purchased by the consent of the legislature yes. of the state mm -hmm. in which the same shall be mm -hmm. for the erection of forts, magazines, arsenals, dockyards, and other needful buildings. Mm -hmm. And that's all the federal government mm -hmm. is allowed to have. Mm -hmm. All the federal forest land in this county, which is the bulk of the county, should mm -hmm. be in the state's hands or mm -hmm. in private hands. Mm -hmm. Or the county not preferably. Yes, or the county's hands. Mm -hmm. But the United States federal government owns 42% of the United States today mm -hmm. in plain violation of the Constitution. And uh, you mentioned the chromite. Mm -hmm. And where are we getting our chromite now? We're getting it from Russia and Zimbabwe. Yes, so oh. we are dependent upon people mm -hmm. who can make us very vulnerable and in wartime. And that's precisely why President Reagan could do nothing over the murder of Congressman McDonald in the downing of Korean Airlines Flight 007, because all he has to do is get too tough with the Russians, and since they supply us with 16 of our strategic metals and minerals, all the Russians would have to do is just shut off our strategic metals and minerals, and the entire steel and metals industry in the United States would be down the tubes or closed up within six months. Yes. Now on these strategic uh, minerals, when it comes to the geological survey, what kind of data do we get about that from the federal government? Why don't you go into that, John? Well, it's, it, it's really a joke because I had two independent... Uh, I should tell everyone that I have... Don't mention any names. Uh, uh, I, 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 <laughs> but Washington I have, has a long time. <laughs> I have, I have um, uh, interest in some mining properties of my own, and I've had independent consulting geologists look at the properties and give me their opinion. And when I cited the fact that the uh, U.S. Geological Survey and the Bureau of Mines had conducted surveys in there. Both of them, both of the geologists that I talked to kind of looked at the ground and kicked, kicked a piece of dirt around, and I said, what's the problem? And he said, well, it is the policy of both those agencies to give negative results. And I said, why is that? And he said, because it's just like the newspaper journalist, you know, who claims that he isn't censored by his editor and by the owner-publisher of the paper. He nevertheless knows what the owner-publisher of the paper wants in the way of data and a story. And the same thing with the federal agencies. They know what the Bureau of Land Management wants because the Bureau of Land Management doesn't want to find minerals there. Uh, it, they don't want to create a, a situation in which the environmentalists are going to get upset. They don't want to tamper with too many special interest groups. And then he also told us that out of the region where our properties were, there would be over 400 pages of detailed data on that region which would never be published they will sit on a shelf 
in, in the federal agencies, uh, bureaucracies, for the next hundred years. And what will be published, however, is a summary, which will be boiled down to about 25 pages, which again will be summarized by the Bureau of Land Management when it makes its report to Congress. And what will eventually happen is, is that it'll look like in this region there is not the slightest possibility of mineral development, when in reality there are two operating mines less than a mile from where I am who are pulling out very, very commercial gold and precious metal products. Mm-hmm. But the, the report will, of course, say that there isn't any. And yeah. that's, that's the way they manipulate the data. Yes. And make us dependent upon our enemies. Well, see, that's, that's also part of a... I think it's very strange that, that, that people don't tie together the fact that many of the major media powers, um, uh, the on-camera personalities and others, are involved with various environmentalist groups across the country. And the basic feeling of these groups is that with respect to foreign policy, the United States should be forced into a position of dependency because that will thereby, quote, reduce the likelihood of war, unquote. And when in reality what it does is it ties the hands of the United States Congress as well as the President, and we cannot function in foreign policy. And I think the last 15 years of our foreign policy is, is graphic proof of that. Reagan doesn't have near the liberty in foreign policy that Kennedy had for just precisely that reason. There's not a thing he can do without having the entire rug pulled out from under us. Very good, John. I won't ask you to go into (laughs) some of the details because we don't want to get some people in trouble. Uh, Start meditating upon some other things, John, and let's ask Otto to... uh, develop his point well the point is a bit different there was a period in the history of Britain when the revolutionists began to uh, cite the Magna Carta and they ascribed to the Magna Carta all sorts of rights which were presumed rights of Englishmen Uh, Unfortunately for the truth of the matter, as against the legend, the Magna Carta gave no rights whatever to the common people. Mm -hmm. It was a document extracted from King John by the nobility, and it gave the nobles certain uh, rights. Now, that reminds me of the American Constitution. People are always talking about the constitutional rights, and very few people know what's in the Constitution or what the rights are. They ascribe to the Constitution magical qualities, which it obviously doesn't contain. It has, I'm not sure about this, I meant to look it up earlier and forgot to, I believe 23 amendments so far. It's hard to believe that a perfect document had to be changed 23 times. (laughs) And some of the changes were very basic. Uh, The change, for instance, which introduced the income tax eliminated the idea of equal taxation and introduced the idea of unequal taxation, which is, of course, inherently unjust. No man should pay more taxes than another man on his income, no matter what his income is. Uh, We could go down the road on the 13th and 14th Amendments, I believe it was, that were 
enacted during the, the radical Republican reign in the middle of the Civil War when the South had no vote, mm-hmm. or right after the Civil War, rather, when the South was told that unless these amendments were ratified without objection, the South would not be allowed back into the Union, politically speaking. Mm-hmm. Uh, those amendments, incidentally, are being used by the courts today to intrude upon all sorts of personal details regarding the interrelationships of the American people. And we can go on down the line. Uh, the idea of the separation of church and state isn't in the Constitution. It was contained in a private letter by Thomas Jefferson, who managed to speak on all sides of his mouth on that subject various times in his career. Uh, right now, it's taken as sanction to outlaw Christianity in the American political scene. There are, right today, a number of people who become indignant at the idea that Christians have political positions or dare to express them. And they will actually use as a counter-argument to a Christian position the idea that it is Christian-motivated, and that is considered sufficient for it to be ruled out of discussion. Oh, we're in a very peculiar position, then. We're talking about a Constitution which doesn't do what the people think it does, which doesn't protect us as it's supposed to, or as it used to, and which is now being used by the courts in many instances as an instrument of tyranny. Well, you cited the 16th Amendment. Let me read that. The Congress shall have power to lay and collect taxes on incomes from whatever source derived, without apportionment among the several states, and without regard to any census or enumeration. There is not a single restricting clause in the 16th Amendment. It makes our total income subject to confiscation by the federal government. This is why whatever we are allowed is called an exemption, Mm -hmm. because our entire income in terms of that belongs to the federal government. There's another factor. It's a principle of law that the last codicil, for example, in a will, governs everything that precedes it. So each new amendment governs everything that precedes it. The 16th Amendment has been used, and I have been involved in cases in the past few years, since 78, where it has been used to nullify any uh, religious freedom as granted by the first. Because according to top state and federal attorneys and the IRS, the 16th Amendment places churches and religious trusts and institutions totally within the taxing power of the federal government. They have therefore no constitutional immunity, only 
they tell us, a statutory one, which is revocable at any time. As a result, I have heard more than one state and or federal attorney say in cases that the First Amendment is of historical interest only. Now, this is something very important for us to recognize because it means that the 16th Amendment has wiped out, if these people are right, previous amendments. And in terms of the fact that it comes after these other amendments, they have a point to their argument. Yes. Well, um, I think the difference we're talking about here in terms of the presuppositions of the framers of the Constitution and modern presuppositions are radically different. They're coming from two entirely different schools of thought. Earlier it was more Christian, the latter is, of course, totally humanist. And I think that in the very first phrase of the 16th Amendment, where it says, Congress shall have power, mm -hmm. that that should be, con which is a, a positive statement of law, uh, that should be contrasted with the First Amendment, in which it says, uh, in which it says, uh, Congress shall have no power. Mm -hmm. You see? Yes. And the difference is the first one is stated in the negative, you see. No, no power to enact laws against the church, you see, in the establishment of religion. Congress shall make no laws respecting the establishment of religion. That's stated in the negative. That negative comes from the Christian historical interpretation in the Ten Commandments structure, you see. The positive law of the 16th Amendment gives total license, you see, yeah. and no area is exempt. But that points out the difference in the thinking in, in, in the same amendments. Well, there is another aspect, and that is that the 20th century, some writer made the observation that the 20th century had substituted money for God. Mm -hmm. The 16th Amendment has substituted economic reasoning as a, an excuse to take away the liberty of the people. Under the protection of the 16th Amendment, the IRS can introduce an ex post facto regulation. Yes. Mm -hmm. And it can also invade uh, without warrant or with warrants that any agent can write uh, with a ballpoint pen in his car without going to a judge. He can, uh, he can look at your records. I recall under the uh, old regime in Britain that a minister was arrested and the searching parties went through his desk, and in his desk, in a secret drawer, they found a sermon that took issue with the Church of England, and on that basis, he was tortured and executed. That became a very famous case later in the creation in Britain of laws against un undue search and seizure. But these laws don't apply to the IRS. Neither do the laws against self-incrimination. Yes. Well, just to glance at some of the things that have been uh, summarily uh, set aside. The Constitution says, also in Section 8, that there shall uh, be a militia which is 
an old-fashioned term, a draft army, can be called, to execute the laws of the Union, suppress insurrection, and repel invasion. Now, until Woodrow Wilson, it was held by the courts that there were only three reasons for a universal or any kind of military conscription to execute the laws of the Union, suppress insurrection, and repel invasions. Only draftees could be used in foreign wars. But Woodrow Wilson set that aside, and the courts sustained him subsequently. They waited until the war was well over before they heard the case. You mean volunteer that could only be used overseas? Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, again, the requirement that only gold and silver can be legal tem- tender mm-hmm. is not only in the Constitution, but in Amendment 14, Section 4. The validity of the public debt of the United States authorized by law, including debts incurred for payment of pensions and bounties for services, in suppressing insurrection and rebellion shall not be questioned. The point of that was to make sure that the paper money issued had to be redeemed and made good and all payments for uh, services, pensions, bounties, etc., had to be in legal tender, gold and silver. Mm-hmm. So you have again something that has been set aside: the requirement of gold and silver as valid money. Well, one of the reasons why they do that, one of the reasons why they get away from gold and <laughs> silver, uh, all civilizations try to do that, is because of the fact that. As a politician starts to buy more and more votes, uh, votes with his uh, pension and welfare plan, and I think the latest numbers I've heard are that one out of every three adults of voting age is now on welfare. Uh, as the politician needs to buy more and more votes with more and more social welfare programs, he cannot very well do so with a limited currency base. And since gold and silver is tough to get out of the ground, it's tough to inflate the economy when you have a, a, a precious metals base. When you eliminate the precious metals, it gets very, very easy then to just pump more paper into a machine and crank out more paper with pictures on it than it does to go into the ground and bring out a ton of ore and grind it and pulverize it and process it for precious metals. And so precious metals as a basis for currency become, uh, uh, they, they put chains. On, on the politicians in terms of their rights to spend. Well, if they're going to institute a social welfare program of some kind, and they want to hide that in any way, shape, or form from the people and its inflationary effects, the first thing you have to do is abolish gold and silver as a basis for currency. And that's exactly what Roosevelt started, you know, with his, with his fiasco. Yes. Now, I'm going to read a couple of statements by men who were involved in the writing of the Constitution. Uh, Pinckney said, quote, by delegating express powers, we certainly reserve to ourselves every power and right not mentioned in the Constitution. Mm-hmm. In other words, express powers only. Mm-hmm. And Wilson uh, said that 
The United States was a limited government which had no powers except those which were specially granted to it. Mm -hmm. Now, those were set aside very, very early. Mm -hmm. I think one of the most dangerous terms uh, in the Constitution was deliberately left out. The word sovereignty. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It was left out because it was held it belonged to God alone. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And yet, Marshall began to use the language of sovereignty. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, of course, especially in the past generation, the federal government has very, very freely and readily claimed sovereignty. And today I find in courts when I challenge the concept and say the word is never mentioned in the Constitution mm -hmm. and it was deliberately left out, mm -hmm. some of the judges express amazement mm -hmm. and uh, it's amusing but of course when they look at the Constitution they are not looking at it from the perspective of the framers mm -hmm. they are looking at it through the eyes of the contemporary Supreme Court mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. as one federal judge stated very flatly he did not want, he said, any of the witnesses to refer to the Constitution or the Bill of Rights because, he said, what that document means will have validity in this court in terms of the latest word from the U.S. Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So this is the Constitution today. It is a humanistic document because the courts say that is what it is. Mm -hmm. And as a result, without a change in the country, you're not going to get back to the Constitution. In fact, there's probably a need to rewrite something now. Yes. A drastic overhaul mm -hmm. uh, in terms of the serious departures we have had mm -hmm. in the past century and a half, especially the last century and a quarter. Well, I think, you know, you mentioned earlier that, that, that very early on people started violating the Constitution. And I, and I think we've seen um, in conservative circles a, a great deal of, of praise, of, for example, of Thomas Jefferson. And yet if the conservatives ever bothered to go back and read exactly what Jefferson did to the Constitution in the United States, they would renounce any involvement whatsoever with Jefferson because it was Jefferson that first instituted the Louisiana Purchase, which in our history books is never mentioned as being a specific violation of the Constitution, which it was, and Jefferson knew that it was. But he said at the time that getting that great mass of land was simply too good a deal to pass up. I'm paraphrasing, but that's exactly what he said. Yeah. It was just too good a deal to pass up. And so it, it Jefferson established the precedent that... Um, that the federal power could just set aside the uh, uh, Section 8 of the Constitution. And we've seen continually, we've seen that whole process continually promoted. I wanted to make one reference about something Otto mentioned during the war between the states. Afterwards, he said that there was a, there was, um, uh, a series of phenomena that occurred uh, with the reinterpretation of the Constitution. I might also mention that in the modern day and age, as there were in his age, a great deal of regulators who crop up 
during these periods of reinterpretation. Now, during the war between the states, we called them red legs. Mm-hmm. And uh, because the military wore red stockings over the lower parts of their, their uh, leggings and boots, and uh, they were the regulators who ran around passing all these regulations that Otto says the IRS can pass with, with the stroke of a ballpoint pen, um, we have the same phenomena today. Uh, everyone is trying to regulate everyone else's conduct, and no one ever bothers to re- pay attention to the Constitution. Well, they're coming pretty close to being able to do it. There are no names attached to the regulations that come out of the agencies. Mm-hmm. Nobody knows who formulates these regulations. They mm-hmm. come out anonymously. And the Reagan administration has congratulated itself for reducing the number of regulations from over 80,000 a year under Carter to a little over 60,000 a year today. <laughs> now, this is a great accomplishment, and it was, a, it was very difficult to do uh, because, obviously, everyone that gets into a government office gets uh, creative urges <laughs> regarding holding down everyone else. <laughs> but these regulations have the force of law, yeah. and they're put together by individuals inside agencies. The agencies serve as legislators, administrators, and judges over their own regulations, which, of course, violates the basic uh, trinity of doctrine uh, theory that set up the Constitution in the first place. Mm -hmm. Well, we could go on. The courts use sociological reasoning and psychiatric reasoning instead of traditional reasoning. And it brings a number of questions to mind. One, for instance, is a growing disillusion, and I think well-based, on whether or not democracy is as good as it's cracked up to be. Mm -hmm. The Founding Fathers never thought democracy was good to begin with. They were against it. They said it always led to anarchy Mm -hmm. and to dictatorship. So they wanted a republic. Uh, we do have the Republican form, but we're like the Romans. Uh, the essence has been leached away. Yeah, now, the Romans didn't change the facade. It turned into Caesarism. And I've met people recently, in recent years, especially wealthy people, who have said to me, I hope somebody will take control. Mm -hmm. There is a sort of a feeling in the American air that we want a strong man to take over. Uh, Some of the sentiment over the downing of the Korean airline, for instance, they wanted a dictatorial action. When we have an economic crisis like the OPEC oil embargo, then the government placates the people by saying we'll create an energy energy czar. This, of course, came in with Mr. Wilson. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mr. Wilson was our, our, our most famous exponent of what a South African theologian described to me as a liberal tendency to believe that anyone who disagrees is intolerant. 
Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, you know, that interesting, a very, very interesting um, uh, premise, or very not, not just a premise, but I think I think it's a, a fairly well-grounded fact now with Lichter and Rothman reports and a number of other things. Uh, I think that one of the major instruments that's being used in that rewriting of the Constitution and the reinterpretation is the press. Uh, I think the press has exploited that almost almost better than anyone else around for their own ends and their own reasons. And as Lichter and Rothman pointed out, the press have a very clear ideological motive in their manipulation of the facts and data. But I think that one of the striking contradictions in that whole thing is the fact that the First Amendment with respect to religion is followed by the same, in that same First Amendment, the clause concerning the freedom of the press. And what the press has failed to realize in all of its brilliant wisdom is that the Constitution presupposes a worldview which produced the clause about religion and the same clause about the free press. And if the press continues to attack the conservative position, and continues to attack the Christian position, eventually, if it succeeds in suppressing both those viewpoints, it also destroys the foundation for free press in the process. And what, what's going to happen is someday the press, when the government starts reinterpreting the second and third clauses about free press, uh, the press is going to look around for support, and it's going to find that it's alienated the very people that it needs in order to, to restore or bring back or or properly interpret the Constitution. So it's, it's, it's a very, very self-destructive tendency in journalism. Well, the history of revolutions in this century, uh, even beginning with the French Revolution, is that the journalists who led the French Revolution, for instance, locked up the press once they succeeded. Mm -hmm. And every revolution so far has locked up the press. Mm -hmm. Uh, I interviewed Pedro Chamorro in Nicaragua when Nicaragua was under Somoza. He was the great uh, opponent of Somoza. But Somoza's government furnished him with all the newsprint he needed and never closed his newspaper down. And Chamorro, who fed information to Jack Anderson, never explained to Jack Anderson that he had the most prosperous newspaper in all Latin America. Mm. He was immensely wealthy. Mm. At any rate, uh, after the Sandinistas took over, and Somoza was gone, and Chamorro, by the way, was assassinated by three Cubans, mm. that paper has been closed down. And not a single editorial has appeared, so far as I know, anywhere in the United States regarding the suppression of that paper whose liberties were so often extolled when Samosa was there. Mm -hmm. Very clear uh, double standard involved there. <laughs> yes, uh, the press today is all too often an enemy of the freedom of religion, as John pointed out. Well, I think that book that you, that you uh, gave to me once, uh, Fire in the Minds of Men, yes. I think, um, while it's not probably the greatest history uh, ever written of that particular, of the concept of revolution, I think the mere fact that, that the author continually points out that so-and-so was a journalist, and so-and-so was a journalist, was a newspaper publisher, a magazine publisher, a book publisher, uh, it seems like that, that if I had to go through and list all the occupations of the principal revolutionaries there, I would probably see uh, two out of every three of them were 
in journalism, the press and media. And uh, it appears that uh, uh, there is a, a historical parallel involved there between the modern age, because we look at everyone who's rewriting, the, who's promoting the propaganda to rewrite the Constitution. Uh, and, and the vast majority of them have major connections either in owning press, uh, outlets of the press and the media, or by having alliances with the press. And I think the most liberal politicians recognize the fact that their view is particularly amenable to exploitation in the press. They're bound to get coverage because of the inherent uh, controversial nature of what they're trying to do. That makes good copy, so the press cooperates with them. The only thing the conservative can do is be the brunt of the argument insofar as the press is concerned, and that's, and that's why they're painted as such. Some years ago, I read a very interesting uh, study of architecture. The point of the author was that a lot of modern architects, being radical humanists, want to build buildings that appear to float in air. And as a result, they are averse to foundations. Mm -hmm. They try to conceal them. Mm -hmm. They try to give the appearance that the building uh, is different from anything ever before made. Mm -hmm. Well, I think humanism is that way, whether it's in the church or the state or in the press. Mm -hmm. It doesn't want foundations. Mm -hmm. And therefore, it works to create a social order, as the press is doing, and as the state is doing, and as your liberal churches are doing, mm -hmm. without roots, mm -hmm. without foundations. And therefore, they are working to create that which will destroy them and everybody else with them. So I think the point Otto made about the, the people and various other entities wanting an individual, a strong individual to yes. step forward and take command, I think that's a quite logical expression of the idea that when the individual's ability to govern himself declines, he invariably seeks someone else who will do it for him. Well, if you are not going to have God, you're going to have man as your God. Mm -hmm. So you will work first towards a world state and second towards a dictator mm -hmm. because you want to unify your faith. Yes, Otto? Well, the press of the United States is its own best admirer. <laughs> it, is constantly, it is constantly telling the people uh, about the glories of a free press. But as the New York Times overlooked the greatest story in New York, which was the bankruptcy of the city, uh, the American press has overlooked a great many developments of which it's kept the American people largely unaware. Mm -hmm. For instance, the Mexican Revolution, which took place over a long period of years, right next door to us, uh, eliminated Christianity in Mexico officially the same year that Lenin achieved power in the Soviet Union, in Russia. Now, it is illegal in Mexico for the priest to wear his collar backwards, for nuns to put on their habit, and for the mass to be said. 
they maintain a few facade churches were in areas where tourists appear. But throughout most of the country, these regulations are rigorously enforced. Yet the average American has no idea that he is next door to an officially atheist country which is officially anti-Christian. Mm -hmm. Neither does the most uh, average American seem to have the idea the entire Soviet and Chinese empires are anti-Christian. Mm -hmm. Not since the early days of, of Rome have Christians been persecuted as avidly and savagely as they are today. How many Americans are kept aware of this? What sort of press do we have? No, just uh, this past week on the telephone, someone, and I've forgotten who it was, we get so many telephone calls, uh, said that a relative of theirs had been murdered in Mexico, where he was uh, on a trip to help some of the Christians there. Now, we don't read about things like that, but that sort of thing is not uncommon. One of the things that indicates the bankruptcy of the press is the fact that whereas when uh, you and I were younger, Otto, <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> uh, I appreciate the fact that I wasn't included in that. <laughs> a few more years, John, and we'll include you. <laughs> but uh, you had uh, several newspapers in every community, virtually, and that was it. Today, just about every group in the country has a newsletter or a tabloid paper, and the uh, count is astronomical. All of these are providing information on specialized subjects. Mm -hmm. They're doing it because the press is not doing it. Mm -hmm. And also because the general public is increasingly aware of the inadequacy of the press. All these, uh, there must be a few hundred thousand uh, tabloids and uh, newsletters and the like would disappear if we had an honest <coughs> press that gave an honest coverage of the news and represented a variety of opinions. Mm -hmm. Well, see, I think the new, the new uh, post office uh, amendments and regulations that they're trying to get passed um, uh, which gives the post office the right to censor uh, mails not in the public interest. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the whole regulation is being propagated that it's a means of protecting the American people from criminals and what have you, when in reality the law, the law is written in such a manner that uh, the Calcedon newsletter, for example, yeah. uh, if it expressed ideas which were contrary to public policy, the post office could just refuse to send it and could, could charge every single one of us involved at Calcedon with criminal violations, penalties, and jail sentences. Yes, I'm glad you brought up that point because it tells us where we are. Mm -hmm. The real Constitution of the United States was enunciated by the U.S. Supreme Court earlier this year in the Bob Jones case. Mm -hmm. Public 
policy governs us. Mm -hmm. Anything contrary to public policy has no right to existence. This is the implication, and you're going to see it uh, put through by court action in the next decade unless we turn this thing around. Mm -hmm. The post office is following the same policy. Mm -hmm. Public interest mm -hmm. or public policy, the mm -hmm. same thing. Mm -hmm. So that the legal groundwork for a dictatorship is already there. And it's there in the name of the U.S. Constitution via the U.S. Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. So that Christian conservatives had better wake up to that reality and stop their pipe dreams well, about I, the Constitution. Well, I think, I think um, you know, as the individual's ability to govern himself declines, then he's going to seek the kind of dictators that, that we're all talking about. Yes. And I think that the, the solution to that problem is that pastors and teachers and Sunday school leaders and community leaders and people of that nature must get back to teaching biblical law and the basis of biblical law. I mean, I've asked to show you, to give you an idea of how ignorant the average Christian is with respect to biblical law. I've time and again I, I'll ask a Christian about equity, mm -hmm. and they come back and says, I, "I didn't know we were talking about real estate." And I says, "No, do you know what equity is?" He says, "That's how much money I got hung up in my house." <laughs> And I said, no, no, I'm talking about equity. The scripture says, I demand equity. The Lord says, I demand equity. You see, mm -hmm. the modern Christian doesn't have the foggiest idea of what equity is all about. And yet it's integral to understanding the Constitution, to understand what equity is all about and what it is meant in terms of law. If the pastor doesn't teach equity, then he may as well throw the golden rule in the New Testament out because the golden rule is based upon the biblical concept of equity. And you may as well just throw it right out. Well, the point is, is that the pastors, if they would, and I realize that evangelism is a major, you know, element in 99% of everything, that's, you know, that in prophecy is, is, is the backbone of modern pulpit work and things of that nature. But uh, they're going to have to learn that they have to teach the average Christian in the pulpit again how to govern himself according to the law of God. Yes. And when the Christian learns those forms of government and how to institute those kinds of laws, mm -hmm. then he can recognize the constitutional errors, and he doesn't have to be a constitutional attorney. Everyone today that I talk to at the colleges and universities, I mentioned the Federalist Papers, you know, and everyone says, the what? And I said, well, you're a history major, a, a government major, political science major, and you've never heard of, of the Federalist Papers? Oh, yes, we get that at the Ph.D. level. And I said, that's very, very interesting. That tells me where your education is at, because originally those were editorials in the New York newspapers, and everybody understood them. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's one of our ways of, of turning the situation around. Right. Just as people don't know, for example, that the Constitution forbids the federal government from owning lands in the states. Yes. Mm -hmm. So they don't know what the Bible teaches. They're ignorant. Mm -hmm. And they're not worried about their ignorance. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All they're interested in is their paycheck and uh, fire and life insurance from the J.C. Life Insurance Company. <laughs> well, I think... Actually, they've been misled to a considerable extent. 
Uh, I did an article some years ago on psychological testing. And as a result of the article, or in order to do the article, I undertook to take a number of these tests. Uh, some of the questions were clearly impertinent, and I didn't answer them. And I was very surprised in one instance where the company psychologist interviewed me and congratulated me on having a high score. And I said, how could I have a high score when I didn't answer all the questions? He said, well, some of those questions were only uh, were phrased so that no one but an idiot would answer them, and we're not in the business of hiring idiots. <laughs> well, obviously, if you can defend yourself, you'll have a high score mm -hmm. in almost any kind of confrontation. Yes. Mm -hmm. If you can't defend yourself, you're going to lose. Mm -hmm. And what the American people have been talked out of is their right of self-defense. And they, I don't mean by that that they have forgotten to pick up a phone and call a lawyer, but to stand up on their own feet, mm -hmm. to think for themselves, to speak for themselves, and to stop sharing in the theft of their own rights. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, equity, you know, I mentioned equity a while ago, and you mentioned earlier the, the income tax uh, measure. Uh, the income tax measure, if the average Christian today had been taught what the meaning of biblical equity was all about, he would have just raised a furor when that, when that uh, concept and idea was even proposed. Because clearly it's a violation of, of equity to tax one man at one rate and another man at another rate solely because of some conditions that can arbitrarily change from week to week and month to month. It's clearly a violation of equity for busing to take place. Mm -hmm. It's clearly a violation of equity for uh, of the vast majority of the, of, the, of the Supreme Court decisions that have come down in the last 25 years. The Supreme Court doesn't any, does no longer recognizes equity, except in, in terms of a social equity which can change depending upon whose definitions you want to read and whose numbers you want to read from the Census Department. And, and so just that one concept alone is enough, is enough to illustrate the paucity of, of Christian learning. Yes. You know, Otto, you mentioned those tests. Uh, one of the men on our mailing list, a good friend of many years standing, was being considered by a Texas corporation for an executive position. And he had to take a battery of tests and then meet with the uh, psychologist or psychiatrist hired by the corporation. And uh, he looked at the tests and uh, read through them. And being a lawyer, he immediately picked them up and walked into the psychiatrist and said, uh, I'm not taking these. They are impertinent. They violate my privacy. And uh, I know what kind of answer you want, and it means you're going to get another rubber stamp in the corporation. And the uh, psychiatrist was very offended, and he said, uh, well, with that attitude, you'll get nowhere. Well, of course, the man is now a member of the ICC. <laughs> and I wonder what will happen if that corporation ever appears before him. <laughs> well, it takes two to tango. 
And a people who surrender their liberties learn the hard way. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very mm-hmm. true. I think I think one of the one of the great joys that I've had in working at Calcedon is the fact that after so many years of frustration and seeing so many Christians not caring about the Constitution except as it, except in an emergency when they they felt their rights had been violated that I've seen so many more Christians who have begun to take seriously their responsibilities uh, in terms of what they're reading now and what they're committed to and, and reading the whole of Scripture from mm-hmm. Genesis to Revelation. And that's been, I find that uh, uh, since I've, I've been here working with you, that that's been, that's been one of the greatest joys I've had. I think, I think that we're going to see a not, an awful lot more difficulties before the situation yes. turns around. But uh, it's like uh, everyone says, well, there aren't enough of us. Well, they ought to read Patrick Henry's Give Me Liberty or Give Me Death speech yeah. because Patrick Henry said, uh, you know, how many of us have to be laying, you know, supine, you know, with the oppressor's knee and, or foot on our neck in chains and things of that nature before we wake up to the fact. Gentlemen cry, peace, but there isn't any. Uh, yeah. Well, the rebellion in England which established most of the English liberties and which was mounted by the Puritans and the Presbyterians, mm-hmm. was really launched by individual men standing up exactly. before the High Commission exactly. and challenging yes. the right of the High Commission exactly. to push them around. Mm-hmm. And they gave unanswerable arguments. Mm-hmm. It was those individuals who laid the basis for our liberty. Yes. Well, John, you spoke uh, a, a little before Otto of your great joy in working for Calcedon. I'm glad to hear you say that. Uh, we'll <laughs> feel safe to, at working you a bit harder than... <laughs> well, I, may, you know, I don't mind working a little bit harder. I, I will uh, somehow or another collect for it in one way or another. <laughs> well, our time is nearing its end. Is there a last word from either of you that... Uh, some little bit of wisdom to add to what's been said so far? I don't think it would hurt to consider alternatives. If we're talking about a document which was originally well-founded but has been distorted out of all recognition, I should think we should begin to think in terms of something more reasonable not necessarily a complicated thing. The Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, is rather brief. Mm-hmm. It isn't necessary to write an encyclopedia, mm-hmm. despite what the people in Washington are doing. Mm-hmm. And I think we could come up with some reasonable alternatives, at least discussable alternatives. Yes. Mm-hmm. And the Constitution does have one great virtue, uh, oh, a very remarkable one. It provides the instrumentation and the uh, roadmap for its own reform. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Then we need to recognize, too, that the federal government today is a national government. And the federal government, as it was intended by the Constitution, was simply a federal government, and the basic government was on the local level and the state level. Mm-hmm. It was only in a few limited areas that the federal government was to function. 
and today we have a totally different type of country. We cannot restore the local element until self-government begins to predominate. I, I, would, I would just add this. I've asked many senators and congressmen at the local and national levels and federal levels, state levels, county levels, etc., what is the definition of civil government in one sentence or less? The biblical definition, of course, is that government is to be the minister of justice. Uh, the framers of the Constitution, in a philosophic sense, phrased that as government is only for the protection of lives, liberties, and estates, not the provision thereof. Yeah. When, when governments begin to provide you with something, regardless of how tempting it looks, or how needful it appears to be temporarily, we know that all temporary laws become permanent because they're always forgotten. FDR's administration is an illustration of that. But the minute a congressman begins, or a senator, or the president of the United States, a governor, a local legislature, a county official, the minute they begin to promise to provide you with something, with anything other than protection of life, liberty, and the states, they have immediately overstepped the limits of the Constitution as originally intended, and red flags ought to go up everywhere. Yes, very good. Because providing always means that a politician is going to buy votes by providing one group of people something with somebody else's money. Well, thank you both, Otto and John, for your contribution. And those of you who are listening... If you uh, have any ideas about uh, a subject you want the three of us to uh, discuss, let us know. We'll be very happy to oblige. Uh, we're always ready to settle the world's problems on order. <laughs> and, and this young man is, is always pleasured and always, uh, I always enjoy sitting with two older gentlemen in these conversations. <laughs> thank, thank you, Sonny. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll see you again or be with you again very soon. Thank you for listening in.